This episode contains descriptions of violence and medical procedures, which may be distressing for some listeners. So we're approaching <laughs> many graves. Um, we're on the, I guess this would be the west hand side of the cemetery. No dice. Okay. Let's head up this way. It was just your average Sunday afternoon in winter, strolling around the Melbourne General Cemetery, looking for a gravesite. We were accompanied by journalist James Bartlett, who had travelled halfway around the world with a story which had led us here. I have to admit, when he first approached us, I was somewhat hesitant. What more could we possibly say about that case involving that man, which hadn't been said already? But in fact, I'm living in my own history nerd bubble. Not everyone in Melbourne has heard of Frederick Bailey Deeming. The great notoriety which accompanied him in life has pretty well dissipated in the long years since his death. What's more, the chance discovery of a long-lost theory about this case brought fresh insights, but beyond the mere mechanics of piecing together the who, what and how of a series of crimes well over 120 years old. What's truly engrossing and distressing is how the public responded. And it's a reaction that feels all too familiar. It's the question of just exactly when will us women wake up, smell the roses, and stop falling in love with the wrong guy. Because he just might be a killer. This is episode one, season two of Dead and Buried, a podcast that delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne. And beyond. I'm Carly Godden. And I'm Lee Hooper. In 1891, in the suburb of Windsor, Melbourne, stood a neat single-fronted brick Victorian cottage. The property had been vacated for some time, that is, until a few weeks before Christmas when a stranger expressed interest in renting the place. The man, who sported a distinctive ginger moustache, gave no name. But he made a good impression. A deal was soon struck with the owner, John Stamford, at his butcher shop, and 17 shillings covering a week's worth of rent was paid in advance. The man explained to the owner, Stamford, that he had taken the house, but he didn't really need it just yet. He was awaiting a lady who was to act as his housekeeper. Consequently, he would not need to bring his furniture just yet from Sydney, where he had worked as an engineer's toolmaker. However, before the end of the second week, he fronted up to Mr Stamford's agent, Mr Charles Connop, complaining, I won't take that house after all. It's overrun with cockroaches. The man who had finally disclosed his name as Droon still paid a month's rent in advance. To Mr Connop, he seemed educated and bright and displayed jewellery with lavishness. In another conversation with the owner Stamford, Mr Droon observed that he would make a good tenant as being an engineer, he was practically minded and would soon put things right. It was a mining consistency. Had he not said that he was a toolmaker to an engineer, not an actual engineer? But it was one that quietly registered with Mr Stanford, who thought Mr Droon just a bit curious and hard to make out. All in all, though, the owner of the property was unperturbed. He was a paying tenant, and if he wished to rent an empty house, that was his business. Not long after paying this rent in advance, Mr Druin suddenly disappeared, his whereabouts unknown to his landlord. The house in Windsor again stood vacant until March when a woman expressed interest in the property. On the 3rd of that month, Mr Stamford showed the prospective tenant around. However, on entering the second bedroom, they were greeted with a strong odour. Mr Stamford sent for his agent. That evening, both men and Stanford's son raised the hearthstone of the fireplace to investigate, but they soon became overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. 
I am a doctor of medicine practicing at Melbourne. On the afternoon of the 4th, at the morgue in conjunction with Dr. Mollison, I made a post-mortem examination of the deceased. The body was that of a female adult. It was dirty from a mixture of a cement and of a soot-like substance. The body was dressed only in a linen chemise and under singlet. The body was five feet and half an inch in length. It was well nourished. The deceased had, during life, been of a slender build and petite. There were no ring marks on any of the fingers. The nails were short and apparently bitten, especially on the left hand. A few days after the discovery of the body, a coroner's inquest was held. Dr William Mullen was called to give his evidence, part of which has just been read out now by our voice actor. On turning back the scalp, the skull was found to be extensively fractured. There was a triangular hole in the skull cap, the sides of which measured each an inch and a quarter. On examining the face and the neck, there was found a clean cut wound on the outer side of the left half of the lower jaw. I believe the small fracture at the back of the skull was the first injury inflicted. Such an injury would render the deceased incapable of resistance. The immediate cause of death was hemorrhage from the cut throat. I have seen the hole in the room at Windsor. I believe the body of the deceased had been placed there at most six hours after death. The body must have been in the hole between six weeks and three months. In my opinion, the deceased was a woman of some 30 years of age. The grim details of the coronial investigation were splashed all over the newspapers, who had intensely followed the case since day one. Witnesses had also come forward, some with vague or unhelpful recollections, others with more useful leads. No Druin appeared on any relevant steamship passenger list, and there was no record of luggage being shipped from the customs house to Windsor. But evidence given by the carriers Stanford and Featherstone revealed a ruse. Luggage had been carried to storerooms in Queen Street before being delivered to Windsor to a couple going by the name of Mr and Mrs Williams. Amongst the assortment of trunks and wickerwork hampers was a canary in an ornate brass cage. While the porter Featherstone worried for the welfare of the bird being in the open with the luggage, he was roughly silenced by Williams, who commented, He has travelled further than you have. Police had also found what appeared to be the remnants of immigration and travel papers, suspiciously burnt in every fireplace of the Windsor house. The canary cage had been seen on the front porch of the Windsor property by neighbours, who had also seen a woman inside the house who appeared to be in her early 30s. So, Lee, at this point, a picture is building of what happened, all of which seems to implicate this Druin, a.k.a. Williams guy, right? Right. So there's some other evidence. An ironmonger had delivered a night pen, some cement, some sand, a broom, a trowel, and a spade to a gentleman living at the Windsor house months earlier. And the man claimed that he needed the items to repair the yard and the boiler, but the ironmonger noticed that both seemed to be in pretty good working order. Yeah, and there's other evidence. So a Mr Albert and a Mrs Emily Williams, they'd travelled aboard the German mail steamer, the Kaiser, months earlier, and they'd come from Southampton in England. And what's more, two female passengers who were aboard the Kaiser, they came forward and they were able to identify Emily's face despite the decay. A new line of inquiry opened when retired sea captain Robert Firth testified to meeting Williams in late January at Circular Quay in Sydney. Firth and Williams had travelled together from England on the Kaiser. Williams wasn't alone and was accompanied by an unknown young woman. We'll go into this detail a little bit more later. It emerged that Williams had booked a first-class ticket and had travelled back from Sydney to Melbourne aboard the SS Albany, destined for the other side of the country in Fremantle, Western Australia. And although the name Williams was not recorded on the shipping records, passengers reported another man aboard the Albany who displayed the same kind of boastful and showy behaviour. This man went by the names of Baron Swanson. Baron Swanson? That's incredible. I know, it's pretty pretentious. On the 11th of March, a woman from Sydney supplied a photograph of the criminal. She'd been acquainted with him in the 1880s, but she hadn't known this person as Druin, Baron Swanson, or even Albert Williams. No, this man had gone by a different name, that of Frederick Bailey Deeming.
So I mentioned deeming right at the beginning of this episode. It's a name pretty well known by Australian history and true crime geeks. And full disclosure, we are far from the first to look into his life. Take our friend, journalist James Bartlett. Uh, Yes, my name is James Bartlett. Um, I'm from England originally, but I now live in Los Angeles. Uh, I work as a freelance journalist and author. I've written a couple of books that are Los Angeles-based about true crime and history and ghosts uh, in bars, restaurants and hotels in that city. Hi, sir. Yes, it is. What's all this thing? So, for anyone who already knows Deeming's story, those amazing sound effects might be a pretty obvious reference as to why Deeming is so notorious. But before we go there, we'd like to introduce someone else with an interest in Deeming. I started off doing my PhD um, just hanging around the police archives. Like, I just thought, I want to do something about the use of photography in um, police policing in Australia because there's lots of interesting stuff in Europe and England and, you know, Bertillon and all of that. And I thought, oh, wow, I'd love to kind of trace the way it happened in Australia. But the archives weren't organised in any way and, you know, it was just too much and I was just kind of sitting in there by myself and there was this one retired policeman who, you know, he wasn't really able to steer me in any direction and every now and again, you know, the, the lights were movement sensitive and so all the lights would go off and I'd just be like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> I could see my youth <laughs> evaporating. <laughs> and so I just left and didn't go back and just went and found a crime and decided to kind of like trace that crime. Um, so just before we move on, we should clarify that access to this kind of material has improved a hell of a lot since then. And we're talking about the dark old days before digital technologies made it much easier for cash-strapped archives to organise their holdings. Most definitely. I mean, I doubt we'd be able to find half as much material then as we can now. Dr Rachel Weaver is currently a senior research fellow in English at the University of Melbourne. She eventually turned her research into a PhD and then a book. Frederick Bailey Deeming was kind of a charismatic English-born serial murderer whose crimes were first discovered in the Melbourne suburb of Windsor in March 1892. I was really interested in the Deeming case for the way it seemed to capture quite vividly a particular moment in Australia's colonial cultural history. While murder always makes headlines, the Deeming case came at a moment when crime was on everybody's lips. Across society, people were talking and thinking about the latest crimes. Crime was the hot topic of the day. The Deeming case slotted readily into a context of popular fascination with crime that had risen to new levels of prominence in the mid-19th century with what they called sensation culture in England, when the local press began to follow criminal events with unprecedented thoroughness. The 1860s also saw the rise of sensation fiction by writers such as Wilkie Collins and Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Their novels were sometimes known by the derogatory term of the newspaper novel, literally because they tapped into public fascination with crime and used the gory details of real-life cases for inspiration. By the time the Deeming case came along, this kind of crime and scandal-focused fiction and the popular attitudes that attended it were all too familiar and were often satirically invoked as part of the kind of celebration of the Deeming case in the press. The fact that the details of what had happened slowly emerged over time added to this sense that readers could play along as armchair detectives. The sense that readers at home could piece together the puzzle very quickly stepped up a notch. Turning back to the police manhunt, it wasn't long until Deeming was tracked down. On the 11th of March, 1892, he was arrested by the Western Australian police in the small gold mining town of Southern Cross. In a week's time, he was to be extradited back to Melbourne. Meanwhile, the Argus newspaper had cabled their correspondent in London with details about Deeming's life. The newspaper knew from passengers aboard the Kaiser steamship that Deeming and Emily had only been married for six weeks prior to migrating to Australia. They had come from the small village of Rainhill in Lancashire, England, where Emily's mother, Mrs Mather, still resided. The reporter immediately travelled to to Rainhill Rainhill and sought out the mother of Emily Williams. I found her living in Rainhill, where she keeps a small shop and is highly respected. Her name is Mather, and the maiden name of her daughter was Emily Lydia Mather. The delicacy of my mission will be apparent when I say that until she obtained the news from me, Mrs Mather had not heard of any murder in Melbourne, and was without the slightest idea of the fate of her daughter. And when I told her of the tragedy, she fainted. 
On recovering, it was some time before her anguish abated. He arrived here, she said, last July, and gave it out that he was about to take a house for his sister. His sister was never seen by any of the inhabitants of Rainhill, so far as I know. At the time Williams came to the village, and during his stay here, he followed no occupation, but described himself to us as a military man. He said that his father was a colonel and was killed in the Crimea War. He spent money freely and mentioned that he had a rich uncle in England. He proposed to my daughter and pressed his suit, and I consented to the marriage. The courtship extended over some weeks, and they were married on September 22nd. All my friends, and a number with whom he had become acquainted in Rainhill, were invited to a party by Williams to celebrate the marriage. After the marriage, Williams and my daughter went on their honeymoon, and a few weeks afterwards, he told me that he was about to leave England for Bombay, to which he was ordered to take charge of the army stores. His intention, so far as it was revealed, aroused no suspicion. They went from England on the 1st or 2nd of November, and I implicitly relied upon his statement as to their destination. I had no idea that they were going to Melbourne until they had arrived there. Emily did not write to her mother in Melbourne, although she did receive letters from Deeming. He wrote, We have spent a happy Christmas. And, Emily is the happiest woman ever seen. She does enjoy herself. This was dated Melbourne, December 29, five days after the murder was alleged to have occurred. These are the main facts gathered in the interview. I have endeavoured to discover if anything is known of William's antecedents. Though the mother appeared to have been satisfied with him, some of their neighbours were suspicious. Ground for misgiving was afforded by the fact that on one occasion he was seen in company with a strange woman, who was said by gossips to be his wife. Locals at Rainhill began to recollect details of this mysterious woman who had come via train from Liverpool with a baby and several small children. Deeming had claimed that she was his sister, but no one had seen this supposed sister actually leave Rainhill. A contractual clause specifically negotiated by Deeming for the property he was renting in Rainhill came to light and was now a cause for great concern. It allowed him to lay down cement over the property's flagstone floors. Three days later, the Argus again broke further news from Rainhill. Police excavations had uncovered the bodies of a woman, a baby and three children. They had been strangled and their skulls crushed before being wrapped in Turkish toweling and buried under a freshly concreted floor. Deeming turned out to be great media talent from the minute he was arrested in a remote area of Western Australia. He seemed to love all the attention and laid on all sorts of eccentricities and odd forms of behaviour. He had epileptic fits on the train to Perth under heavy police guard, cut off his signature auburn moustache in the dead of the night and claimed to have brain injuries that affected his sanity. He played cards with the police and made droll and offbeat comments that were eagerly transmitted around the colonies and reported in all the newspapers. This was also the moment that the Deeming case became an international sensation. The ship carrying Deeming steamed into Melbourne's Hobson's Bay from Perth just as news of his committal to stand trial in England was received. On the 5th of April, the inquest in Melbourne for the Windsor bodies was reopened. The jury found that Deeming was responsible for Emily's death and would face a criminal trial for her murder. Even before his arrest, reports had been circulating about Deeming's earlier life, his previous exploits, and in particular, his relationships with women. Born in England in 1853, at age 16, Deeming had run away to London and then went to work at sea. In February 1881, he returned to Birkenhead and married Marie James, and they lived there briefly before heading to Melbourne. In Australia, he worked as a plumber and gas fitter, mainly in Sydney. Yeah, so that must have been when that photograph which was supplied to the police was taken, right? That's right. By 1886, he had two daughters with Marie. During this period, he also received his first sentence, six weeks imprisonment for theft from his employer. In December 1887, he was then committed for trial on fraud charges when he disappeared while on bail. Yeah, and now we're up to the period in his life which we know the least about. Which brings us back to this. 
I'm going to reveal that I'm a big fan of what I would call the wouldn't that be cool research technique. So that's where I just hope that there might be a cool story on a particular topic and I type in some combination of exciting keywords into a search engine and just see what happens. But it turns out I'm not the only user of the wouldn't that be cool methodology. In early 2017, our journalist friend James Bartlett looking was looking into, into a, a serial, serial killer, killer in Los Angeles. Angeles. There was a reference to Jack the Ripper and I thought, just for fun, I would put in Jack the Ripper into the search engine in the Los Angeles Times and see what came up. What came up was a reference to a possible pseudonym that Deeming had used before. When Deeming was arrested in Australia, it made headlines in the Los Angeles Times because it said that he had been arrested, that the monster had been found, but that there was a Los Angeles connection. And that was obviously of most interest to me, so I looked back and tried to look back in the archives to find out what this connection was, and the connection was that there was a man who had been in Los Angeles some four years before, just several months before the Ripper killing started in London, who had wooed and married and then conned a local woman out of a lot of money and then disappeared. That man had gone under the name of Charles H. Williams. Williams sounds familiar, right? OK, so bear with us here now. You might recall the retired sea captain had a chance encounter with Deeming and another young woman in Sydney. As Rachel Weaver explains... It also emerged that he was planning to marry a young Australian woman, 19-year-old Kate Rinsfeld, who he'd met while travelling to Sydney, which added another almost weirdly romantic dimension to the story. In fact, Deeming was a sleaze from way back. After Deeming absconded from Sydney in 1887, subsequent police and newspaper investigations pointed to him spending some time in South Africa between the years 1888 and 1889, interspersed with time spent in England. Right, so in November 1889, in the English town of Beverly, Deeming had passed himself off as a wealthy retired Queensland sheep farmer named Harry Lawson. He charmed Nellie Matheson, the 21-year-old daughter of his landlady, they married on the 18th of February, 1890. About a month later, after their honeymoon, he suddenly disappeared, taking his expensive diamond gifts to his new wife, Nellie, along with him. And remember, this whole time he was still married to his first wife, Marie, adding bigamy to Deeming's growing list of crimes. OK, so let's jump forward again to the 18th of March, 1892, when Deeming was in custody and awaiting his extradition hearing. By now, people were beginning to think that Deeming was capable of just about anything, even the very worst of crimes. Along with all this news of past encounters with Deeming came allegations that he'd been seen acting suspiciously around the area of Orgate in London's East End on relevant dates, as well as rumours that he would carry dissecting knives in his luggage and wore a dark brown ulster with a cape, clues that matched up with evidence of the Ripper murders. And because he killed his wife and his children in a similar Jack the Ripper type way, you know, cut their throats and, you know, was pretty brutal about all of it. People made that connection of, you know, it's a brutal, you know, slashing the throat crime like Jack the Ripper was. And of course, you're, you are only selling newspapers. You know, this isn't a criminal investigation. So of course, that's enough for the newspapers. So what exactly had happened in Los Angeles? Well, the earliest evidence I found was... Uh, was back from uh, 1888, April 1888, um, which was talking basically about um, C.H. Williams, Charles Williams, who was a con man who had conned this poor lady, uh, Nanny Catching. So it was a simple story about that, rather jokey in tone in the Los Angeles Times, saying how he was uh, charming and he was a good singer and he was a Freemason, all the ladies liked him. Um, and he romanced this lady and despite her friends warning against him, he, uh, they got married. I managed to find the wedding announcement in the paper as well. Um, and then he started to work for a real estate broker locally. Some people liked him, some people didn't. What tended to happen was in nearly every case, he would ask for money or a loan or would disappear with money and would be found to be non-trustworthy. And in this case, Nanny Catching, who was quite sort of a well-known lady locally as a singer and a piano teacher and a music teacher, um, of course, singing and parlour parlour entertainment being much more popular than, than it is now. Uh, the same for, for church going and for choirs and choral work. She was well known locally and she married him and she was totally ripped off by him and the sympathy was very much for her. Um, but then it was when four years later, um, almost literally four years later, when he was arrested in, here in, in Australia and that there was a reason to believe he lived in Los Angeles. That's what they said. And they presented the LA Times here, a very long 
timetable and the dates and times and places and what had happened to him and the pictures of him with a large hat and a very droopy moustache and various people, local people, people of good standing usually, saying, this is the man I knew as Charles Williams, you know, he worked for me, that is his picture. And then sometimes they would say, well, this is the picture of Deeming. This is the man who's supposed to be Jack the Ripper. Yes, that's one and the same man. He was here. He was the killer. And as far as the newspapers went over the next few days, they had other witnesses. They even went so far as getting a piece of his uh, handwriting uh, was analysed, and they said, yes, it's the same writing that Deeming has as opposed to Williams has. They must be the same person. Then there were other people, usually presented by the other newspaper, who said, oh, no, we've talked to this person. They didn't say that at all. They said it wasn't him. It definitely wasn't right. Nanny Couching, too, also said that uh, she didn't think it was him, but that was understandable. You know, she felt embarrassed and humiliated. She said it was someone else, but it just seemed to be a continual uh, rollout of names and pseudonyms and crimes that seemed to indicate it was quite possible that this that Deeming was Williams and that the man who'd been in Los Angeles had been in Australia as well. Did they say how much he stole from her? It was about two and a half grand. I don't know if that was cash, cash, but it was, uh, she had a number of properties. She was rich. She had a number of properties and she was buying properties, so she would send him out, being the man, which I'm sure was safer, and he was supposed to go and pay for these properties or collect rent, which he may well have done. He just never went to the bank with it. So she would go to the bank and go, so, you know, what's my current account? And they go, well, there's nothing in there. And she go, what do you mean? I've got, you know, the last three weeks' rent coming there. Well, it was never deposited. And so, of course, she wouldn't, of course, didn't suspect her husband, whom she loved. I mean, I, I did read something how, before he left, he did go around Los Angeles and pay off a number of debts. And then he left. And someone was saying, well, of course, that's the way you do it. Because then the only person he was beholden to, who he owed money to, was his wife. And that was going to be really hard for her to get the money back. If he owed money to lots of businesses, they could be legal about it. But he just left owing money to her and knew she'd been humiliated. She's not going to come chasing him around the world to get that back. On the 25th of April, 1892, Deeming's criminal trial commenced in Melbourne. Once the trial began, he really seemed to enjoy the limelight, so that the trial itself was treated as a sort of performance for the crowded public galleries. Deeming was said to have made jokes, shown romantic feelings towards his erstwhile fiancée Kate Rinsfeld, smirked and smiled sardonically, napped and generally played up to the huge crowd that hung on every detail of the trial as it unfolded. Deeming was appointed barrister William Furlong and the respected politician and barrister Alfred Deakin, who would go on to become Australian's second Prime Minister. The defence team requested a month's postponement, arguing that they needed more time to collect information on Deeming's mental state, but they were only granted one more week to prepare. So Deeming's lawyers pursued the insanity defence, and so they brought forth a number of pieces of evidence. Uh, the first one was an Argus newspaper journalist. He was a witness who had seen Deeming having a fit. And remember that at the time, epilepsy was not particularly well understood, and some people thought that it was a sign of insanity. But the main evidence was that of Dr Springthorpe, who read out Deeming's written responses to questions. So Deeming had also said that he'd been harassed by visitations from his deceased mother, regularly sensing her presence beside him. Yeah, and he'd also said that his mother and father had spent times in asylum. And a girl had given him the nickname Mad Fred. Yeah, right. Uh, what else? Have you got some quotes there? So there were some other quotes here as well, um, that it surprised him that without experience he could do anything he tries. Yeah, and he didn't know why he does these things and shivers to think of doing them again. And what about how he was addicted to women? He's fond of them and making them happy. Hmm. Yeah, and he'd also said that he'd spent some time in hospital for kind of various head wounds. Hmm. Mm. Uh, what's more, he believed he was infected with syphilis and that a man should kill his wife rather than infect her with it. Um, although he didn't really allude to this being the case with Emily specifically. And there was that letter that was produced addressed to his mother-in-law, Mrs Mather, that her daughter Emily was not dead and she knew all about it, and she should tell the police at once. It's all a case of mistaken identity, right? Right. Mm. 
But the jury rejected these claims of insanity and Deeming was found guilty. His appeals were dismissed and he was sentenced to death by hanging. Okay, so this might be a good point to recap on where we're at with Deeming, beginning with the discovery of the body of his wife, Emily Mather-Williams. The police, although initially having little to go on, received various reports of a man going by a number of pseudonyms, who people remembered due to his showy, boastful behaviour, and in particular his attentions to women. Police inquiries led to the arrest of Deeming in Western Australia, who had already began the hunt for another wife, his erstwhile fiancée Kate Rinsfeld. While he was being conveyed back to Melbourne to face trial, the bodies of his first wife and their children were uncovered in Rainhill, England. The couple had lived together briefly in Australia, during which time Deeming was committed on fraud charges. And it's at this point that the details became a bit murky because Deeming absconded and he kind of disappeared. But there are reports that he spent time in between Africa and England, involved in various scams. We'll discuss this more later on, but what we do know is that Deeming pops up again in the English town of Beverly, having committed bigamy with 21-year-old Nellie Matheson. And we're at the beginning again because once Marie was under the concrete floor, well, it's at this point that Deeming moved to Melbourne with Emily. With the media storm surrounding Deeming during his arrest and trial, people began to attribute almost any crime to him, those of Jack the Ripper or even another swindler based in Los Angeles going by the name Charles H. Williams. It seems extraordinary that he managed to travel so much. But if you had plenty of money, okay, it was sea travel, it would be slow, but you could get somewhere. I mean, he was supposed to have... Back talking with James, we tried testing out the Charles H. Williams is deeming theory. The Rainhill murders were 91. 91. And, yeah, so he married her 88. It was like a two-year period. Very, very close together time-wise for all of these things to have all happened. But... For the, if you focus on one thing, it doesn't matter what t- happened in the other times. You know, these LA ones were focusing on the LA times. And there was like, well, there was a period between 19, 1886 and 1888 where that's not accounted for. The implication being is that he was here for two years straight. And, of course, you look at the dates and it's like actually, you know, 11 months. But that doesn't mean to say he couldn't have done any of this stuff in 11 months. I mean, no one was watching him. So what evidence did we actually have? James had uncovered quite a few newspaper articles, but what about any official records? Yeah, so that's the uh, the California city directories. So we found out that Nanny Catching is definitely, as far as we can tell, real person, real deal. Um, we also found a naturalisation record for a Charles Herbert Williams. So there's some plausibility there. We don't know exactly. Some of the facts match up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know, you know roughly the, same, the right age, age 35, immigrated from Sydney, that was in April 1886, uh, and then he applied for naturalisation in 1887. So puts it around mm-hmm. the right time. Your heart always sinks when you're, you're researching someone whose name is like Smith or Baker because it's like, how on earth? What are the odds of me getting the right one? You know, you come across a really odd name, you're like, this could be great because this is an odd name. I might be able to find this. But Williams? That's a really tough one to come up with. I mean, that was great that... The, that you know, C.H. Williams from England, roughly about the same age. I'm like, you know what, if I had to bet, I would say that was him. This guy who was in, yes, I would say that was him. That sounds right. It's a lot of coincidences not to be him. Well, we've got a little surprise for you. Yeah. So Lee did some further digging and we found a copy of the marriage certificate. Cool. Yeah. I would like to see that. There it is, Charles H. Williams, C.H. Williams. Native of England, age 36, resident of Los Angeles. He knows the above name Nanny Catching. She is a native of Missouri. Okay, so the marriage checks out. But what about the Charles H. Williams on the naturalisation certificate? Yeah, so the naturalisation certificate says that Charles H. Williams immigrated uh, to the US in 1886 and that he applied for naturalisation in 1887. 
Charles E. Lloyd, who's quoted in the San Francisco Chronicle, he's quoted as saying that he met Charles H. Williams in 1887, that he knew him for a year and that they met through Nanny's church choir and that he gave him room in his office, which is a real estate uh, business. So the certificate might be for a different person then? Yeah, true. But I wanted to show you this surprise evidence as well. So you know that uh, Charles H. Williams, he was supposed to come from New South Wales. Mm. Well, I was looking through some records at the New South Wales Records Office and I found in their kind of their deposition registers, which is kind of like a list of all their crimes, committed for certain dates. Uh, In their index, they have, in fact, if you just look, if you can just read it out here, line there. Charles Williams, 63, Wagga Wagga, 13th of January, 1883, Larceny, Wagga Wagga. Yeah, so we have an actual Charles H. Williams who's there coming from New South Wales, so I think... Interesting. Yeah. Despite numerous appeals by his lawyers, Deeming was hanged at 10.01am on the 23rd of May, 1892. While in prison awaiting his execution, Deeming wrote his autobiography and received visitors, including the Bishop of Melbourne and Lizzie Roundsfell, the sister of Kate Roundsfell. So Lee, his will contained a few pretty curious requests, right? Yeah, I asked Rachel about this. So in uh, Deeming's will, he said that he had a um, his life story that he wrote. Yeah. And he also talked about treasure. Yeah. Do you know anything um, about the treasure? Uh, well, yes. He claimed it was £11,000 of gold and that it was buried somewhere in South Africa and he offered to give the map to Kate Rinsfell, the fiancé, um, so that she could go on a treasure hunt. Um, but I think it might have been a trick. <laughs> yeah. I think it was. <laughs> what a joke. <laughs> and he also left her his autobiography in his will, but um, the authorities, if it, if it exists, uh, like I think some version of an autobiography did exist, but they claimed to have destroyed it. Okay. And why? First of all, they said it was, um, you know, like too inflammatory and problematic and, you know, mm-hmm. but then they said kind of as a, as a literary work, it was just, it wasn't good enough. <laughs> it's kind of like, what a strange concern, you know. When all of this kind of subliterary information had been circulating, it's incredible to think that they say, oh, no, it's just not, as it, it has no merit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as for Deeming's posthumous remains, well, there's records that Deeming was buried at Melbourne Jail along with other notorious criminals, like the bushranger Ned Kelly and that the remains were eventually exhumed. There's a few theories about what exactly happened to the bones, but that's a whole nother story. As Rachel explained, during the time Deeming was executed, criminal anthropology had emerged as a discipline to try and classify criminals according to their physicality. Death masks, which are castings in wax or plaster of a dead person's face, had been used since the Middle Ages as a kind of portrait, but by the 1800s they were being used for the study of criminal types. Deeming was no exception. And his death mask was taken, and I believe there's still a copy of the death mask at the jail here, but there was also a death mask in the Black Museum at Scotland Yard in London. And for many years, even though the museum was not open to the public, it was very much well known that this death mask was introduced as the man who was Jack the Ripper. Okay, so let's now deal with this whole Jack the Ripper is Deeming business. Okay, yes, let's do it. So, to have committed the Jack the Ripper crime, Steaming needs to have been in England by August 1888. So we know Deeming goes back to Birkenhead at some point, but when? There's this newspaper article which states that Maria's sister-in-law said that Maria arrived in Birkenhead around Christmas 1887 and that Deeming joined her a few weeks later. Some time passed. She was confined with the bub and Deeming then left for Africa. Yeah, so some time passed. That could be a few months or a few weeks, right? Like, it's not particularly specific in that article. Uh, And the leading theory is that Deeming and Marie travelled from Melbourne to Adelaide, 
remember they were fleeing that fraudulent bankruptcy charge in Sydney. And I found this newspaper article that Detective Fraser of Victorian Police, he investigated the steward of a ship, the Barossa, I think it's called. And it says that he recognised Deeming's portrait and that when he travelled from Adelaide to St Helena in February 1888, he was travelling under the name W. Ward. And the story was that he showed um, all these people on board diamonds and he was accused of stealing 60 pounds from two brothers named Howe while he was there. Also, part of the theory is that Deeming's third child, Sydney, was born at sea. Um, and then from St. Helena's, he's then supposed to have travelled to South Africa on the Darubin Castle, I think it's called. Yeah, I had a look at all of the South African immigration records and shipping lists. And as you can imagine, looking up Williams or Ward on incomplete shipping lists is pretty much impossible. And let alone Barron, Swanson and all of his other names, um, did a pretty extensive search on all of those records and came up with nothing that could directly be him. Yeah, yeah, I think they're like, particularly the South African records, it doesn't seem to be in a lot there. Uh, you know, there's things like there's evidence of a Mr. and Mrs. Ward docking on the 1st of April, but that's on the Drummond Castle steamship, so it's not the right one. Um, and the, the people who are listed, um, it says that they're in their mid-20s and Deeming and his wife at the time, they would have been in their mid-30s. But I did one final dig and I think I found something, but not in the South African records. So I'd like to show that to you, Lee, if I could now. Sure. So I found this just in the South Australian Weekly Chronicles, the newspaper, uh, and you can see they have a listing for the Barossa, the ship, and just can you read out who's on board? Okay, just looking for the Barossa. Monday, January 30. H. Walker. Passengers for St Helena. Mr and Mrs Ward and two children, Mrs H. Howe and D.S. Howe. Yeah, so we actually have evidence that the wards boarded the um, steamship for St Helena. Yeah, so we have South Australian shipping records of them. And yeah. the brother Howe. Yeah, and the brother Howe. So there you go. So we know that we got to, you know, that they got to that point. Um, but beyond that, hmm. So we don't actually have that record of any of the ships coming into the UK, which meant that he would be there in 1888 in order to be the Jack the Ripper. But then again, just because we don't have that evidence, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Look, the next definitive record we have is of Deeming when he's, uh, well, he's pretending to be Harry Lawson, who, you know, when he committed the bigamous crime in February 1890. So it does leave us with a possible window. But there's further potential evidence of Deeming's movements. In newspaper reports, Victorian detective Brandt said that he knew Deeming from when they were both in South Africa and that Deeming was his prime suspect in the murder of a white guy and two natives, which occurred in mid-1888. And this kind of matches up with the evidence we do have from passages on the Kaiser that Deeming boasted of killing many Zulus with his knife. Okay, so equally there's evidence from a police officer uh, that's a fairly credible source that Deeming was in South Africa in August 1888, meaning he's not Jack the Ripper, at least according to that evidence. But, you know, this whole exercise raises a few crucial points. Uh, here's James. You know, it's 110 years later now, and we're still talking about Jack the Ripper, and they're still coming up with new ideas and still thinking of new theories and who could have done it. There's dozens and dozens of suspects, you know, much more inconceivable and ludicrous than this one is. And even if they had cast iron evidence now, which would have to be probably DNA, people still wouldn't believe it. Because it doesn't, it doesn't behoove anything to solve the mystery. The thing we like is the mystery. But that's not all. There's something else going on that we didn't really think of. That's until we came here. Yes, I mean, it's an urn, isn't it? I suppose it's... Looking around, uh, there's heaps... That look quite similar. Um, wrong one? So we thought we'd go and visit Emily Mather's grave, which was somewhere in the Melbourne General Cemetery. All we had was a picture and a rough idea of where it might be. And then... OK, we found it. Wow, there it is. Hang on. 
In memory of Emmy, Emily Lydia Mather, beloved daughter of John and Dove Mather, Dove Mather of Rainhill, England, murdered 24th of December 1891 at Windsor, Melbourne, aged 26, erected by public subscription, who all her days, while yet alive, to live and honour she did strive, till she trusted as her guide, without cause or warning, her life denied. And then under that advice, to those who hereafter come reflecting upon this text of her sad ending, to warn her sex of their intending, for marrying in haste is depending on such a fate too late for amending, by her friend E. Thunderbolt. Yeah, so we quickly looked him up. An execution. Ah, a family acquaintance of the mother family, Edward Thunderbolt, Melbourne's Inspector of Public Nuisances arranged a public subscription and a monument to Emily Mother was erected at Melbourne General Cemetery. As the Australian struggled to comprehend the savageness of the Winder murder, significant press speculation grew, suggesting Deeming was Jack the Ripper. Wow. That's very interesting. I think for us now it's kind of strange that they're giving a warning to other women, don't yeah. you think? Yeah, a warning on a grave. It's your fault. Don't marry in, marry in haste. Don't marry in haste. Don't marry in haste or you might end up dead. Take the proper precautions and don't fall in love with a murderer. Can't say we didn't warn you, ladies. Sounds a bit like victim blaming, doesn't it? Yeah, and it really stinks that Emily's legacy has been defined by, you know, not what she did in her own life, but by how she died. Although, I was thinking about this. In investigating deeming, aren't we guilty of perpetuating that? So last Christmas, while I was in England with my fellow Justin, we made a trip to the Jack the Ripper Museum in East London. We'd heard that in 2015, people had protested its opening, and I wanted to see what it was like for myself. Now on the second floor, which is the sitting room, it's a bit of a mock-up of how Jack the Ripper's sitting room might have looked at the time. Um, as many probably know, there were beliefs that he more than likely had some idea about anatomy, so perhaps he was a doctor or some such academic. So we've got a lot of uh, doctor's implements, which look pretty creepy. I've taken a few photos, some nice little knives, um, clock, a radiola. Is that called a radiola? Gramophone. Gramophone. This beautiful gramophone with some records, Beethoven, of course. Lee, isn't one of the main issues for the protesters that they had been promised a museum dedicated to the women of East London and instead it celebrated a serial killer? Yeah, that's what they say. I tried to interview the museum, but they said they were unavailable at the time. I mean, it was Christmas. Um, they did provide us with a statement in which they said that on the top floor they have a room devoted to the women of the East End, that it is designed to show how the victim Mary Kelly's room might have looked. They also said that visitors find the museum very respectful for the victims. I think, though, regardless of whether it's a museum, a doco or a book, in this area it's a pretty low threshold to cross over from learning about the history or investigation of crime to consuming crime as a kind of form of entertainment. And that's something as a podcast, which, you know, we have a definite focus on real crime, gives us pause for thought. Yeah. We know a lot about Deeming's character and what he said, but know very little about Marie and Emily. We only have their photographs, really. It's so much overshadowed by the manner of their deaths. But at least with Nanny Catching, we have some evidence of a fighting spirit of a person who just got on with life. I mean, because I, I did see there was stuff afterwards. She stayed in L.A. for a while, certainly, because she got she got back to work at, mm. at, or rather got back to work. But that was her job. So I found lots of references to her still singing in church choirs and doing performances and stuff like that. And she had a like a, a, her favorite song was like My Love is a Red, Red Rose, something like that, which, of course, was so tragic because of what happened to her. And as for the great mystery of who was whom and whom did what, I almost think that's not the burning issue here. Isn't the real question just why are we continually fascinated by violent crime as a society? As a society, we're both abhorred and intrigued. What does that say about us? 
it's the sense of the other coming into the protected worlds, isn't it? You know, it, it, middle class, upper class, it's like the lower class. Then we don't have any contact with them. That's nothing to do with us. That's where the crime and the bad things happen is there. You know, we're all respectable and decent, good, decent people. And then something like that happens. You think, good Lord. So that can happen here. Well, then that could happen next door to me. They seemed respectable and well-adjusted and, and they had money and a nice home and they had everything that it seems that you need to be happy. And yet he would do that. Does that mean that anyone else could do it? Because he's this floating kind of criminal signifier that he could be applied to any situation and it seems like, oh, yeah, it must have been deeming because people couldn't kind of imagine that there would be so many really bad people apart from anything. But also it was exciting, it was titillating to think that maybe he'd been there as well, I think. So people like the kind of brush with... Yeah, yeah. People loved reporting their experiences with him in the past, Mm -hmm. you know. When I met him on a boat, (laughs) he was, like, like reminiscing about it. This episode was produced, researched and written by me, Carly Godden, with editing, research and co-production by Lee Hooper. Mixing, audio production and the original score was by Christian O'Brien. Connor Gallagher was our voice actor and our Dead and Buried theme music is by Robin Waters. We'd like to especially thank James Bartlett for approaching us with this story. And if you want to find Rachel Weaver's book on deeming, The Criminal of the Century, it's still available online at Australian Scholarly Publishing. You can explore the original evidence we use to build our stories at deadandburiedpodcast.com. Connect with us on social media and discover more Dead and Buried episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Even better, leave a review to help spread the word. Season 2 of Dead and Buried was assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its Arts Funding and Advisory Body and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. Victoria.